Hello, and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Anna. And I'm Althea. And I'm Jolie. Yay, Jolie's our third guest and our co-host, and Jolie is absolutely amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Could you possibly tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm here doing my second PhD. I work in the classics department, and uh, my subject is ancient magic. Wow, so what made you want to do a second one, and what was your first one in? My first PhD was actually in um, 19th century history. Okay. So I did a lot of feminist research. I focused on women work in the family. Really great time, took about five years to do it, back when you could take five years to do a PhD. And, uh, and then I went off into the wider world, uh, ran my own business for a bit, got caught up in the crash. I was very sick for five years, couldn't leave the house. And then I thought, what did I really, really love doing? Well, I really loved university. So I came back, I did a master's in classics. And during that, about seven weeks in, I read this book on epigraphy and there was a whole section on uh, cursed tablets. And I went, wow, I really have to get into this. I, I love fantasy fiction. I write fantasy fiction. I read fantasy fiction. I was like, oh my God, magic is a thing. And discovered a whole swathe of spells that were written around um, the fourth century and started getting into them. And that led to my PhD, uh, which is on the use of objects in magic. Could you possibly tell us a little bit more about your project and what it is actually about? Well, what I got really interested in was, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan, by the way, and I got really interested in how you make an object magical. Like, what's the difference between uh, a one that works and a one that doesn't work? Does it have to be made in some particular way? Are there rituals around it? And what are the objects that people were using at the time? So I started off last year looking at spells. So we have a huge corpus of spells written from the first to the fourth uh, centuries AD. So I started looking at them and wow, are they bonkers. And then uh, this year I've been moving on to looking at uh, objects. So I'm looking at the actual, these little terracotta objects. And the really exciting thing was I discovered we have this collection of small terracotta women uh, in seated in a particular position. We have them in museums all over the world and they're just completely ignored. Nobody knows what they are. They're not described in any texts from the period. No spells describe making them. But then on the, at the same time, you don't have anyone who describes daily life. We don't see them appear in letters or anything like that. So they're a complete mystery. And everyone's pretty much ignored them until now. And I'm, I'm sort of going, no, no, I love these. These are my, these are my ladies. And I'm really excited about it. This might be a modernist question, but if we kind of look at socioeconomic backgrounds of people who are using those objects, who are interacting with them, what groups of people are using them? Is this just priests? Is this kind of a part of elite culture? Is this something that is incorporated into daily life? Do we know anything about that? Uh, it depends on the, the object because, uh, and it depends on the evidence we have because for some things we just have no physical evidence. Uh, the spells, for example, we've only got one uh, doll, very famous doll called the Louvre doll, where she is actually pierced with needles as described in a spell, which mm. is 
fascinating, really exciting wow. stuff. And that's about the only place where we've made a clear connection between a written spell and a physical object. Your research of the clay women or in any... Any, any research. Wow. We've not been able to find physical examples, but that's partly because the materials they use degraded and could be reused. They would not survive 2,000 years in the ground. So that's one problem we have. And, and on the other hand, we have physical objects where we have no written description. Okay. So we have no idea what level of society used them. Uh, we do understand that every level of society used magic. We have descriptions from the, you know, the highest levels of Roman society talking about the use of curse tablets. And we know that everyone had a shrine in their home. And my, one of my major arguments is that you shouldn't really delineate between magic and religious ritual because essentially they're trying to achieve very much the same thing and it's a much more modern interpretation to say, well, magic is about degenerate stuff. It's about the bad things. It's about, you know, evil and all that. That's not true. Quite a lot of magic was about healing. It was about protection. It was about communicating with the deity. So in your study of magic in the ancient world, do you see any distinction between magic and religion in that religion is trying to appropriate a higher power to act in their behalf, whereas magic is trying to appropriate power for yourself to do things on your own, or is it quite mixed? They're both doing the same thing. Um, I prefer not to see a clear delineation between going to, because there wasn't a delineation. I mean, certainly no, there's no concept of religion as a set of beliefs in the ancient world. We have to talk more about religious practices. And there's not much difference, to be honest, with a lot of these in our in what they call magical texts. We have hymns, we have prayers, we have approaches to deities asking for protection and support. And at the same time, you do have spells that are love spells, which involve graphic and fairly horrific acts performed on the target in order to get them to love you. And I certainly... If I was someone who discovered that that was how my my partner wanted to be with me, I would be I would be asking some serious questions these days. But uh, yeah, certainly, and and covering yourself in scarab dung does not make you invisible. But <laughs> people also had domestic shrines. They went to temples, but for the same things, they were going looking for healing. They were going looking for support. If they had financial difficulties, they'd go to temple and, and make sacrifices and do exactly the same things described in the spell text. So you can't really say that there is a clear delineation. I think it's much more of a modern thing. I think it probably comes from um, Renaissance and you know early modern ideas about you know trying to delineate between magic and religious practice because the two have become so separated with the church. It's not my specialist area. I'm sure we could find someone in the university who could talk more about that, but I suspect that's why when they discovered the spell texts, they instantly said, oh, well, there's this thing called magic in the ancient world, and it's entirely separate to acceptable religious okay. practices. But it was more of like, you know, you hear about the texts, you expect them to be worshipping the pantheon, so were these spells like separate from that? Or is there absolutely no delineation between worshipping the pantheon at the temple and doing your magic at home with the doll? 
God, that's a difficult question. I mean, to is answer, when, when it, you because you're talking about magic, and you're not calling it religion. I'm just trying to understand. Well, I th- I think it's because we we tend to think of um, religious practices as going to temple and sitting. Yes, and that kind of thing is not really an accurate description of how religion worked is that you went and you maybe made sacrifices or you made an offering for something that you wanted um and then you of course you have established state rituals so you have public rituals we think more in terms of where these behaviors take place you know are they domestic they occurring domestic shrines that people had or are they occurring as a state-sanctioned religion religious practice okay um Uh, One interesting thing about the spells is because they occur in Greco-Roman Egypt, which was an area with all the gods, like, I mean, everybody was hanging out there at the time. It was huge. So, and you also have this long period where gods and goddesses and cults are used to achieve things in society. So during the Ptolemaic period, you have the, the, the creation of Serapis. And, and this is a, a wonderful PR stunt, which actually they pulled it off. It doesn't usually work to to kind of create a god and then say, hey, we made this god, worship this god. Right. It does actually happen. Serapis really takes off. People are really into Serapis. Uh, Isis, the same thing later on. You have Isis statuettes occurring throughout the Roman Empire. And that's absolutely fascinating. That, that 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 these certain gods take off and they they get really popular and everyone's really into them um and you you know you worship them in your home if your partner is away on business for example a woman would um they describe them in the letters as as you know making supplication to the apis ball or they might make supplication to some other god the spell texts are really interesting because they feature everybody they feature creatures that were known as demons they feature Zeus is is kind of absent, but uh, we have a lot of Jesus. Uh, we have a lot of Jewish representation. Io Sabaoth appears, very very popular. Gods and goddesses and names that we just don't recognise these days. We're not talking about a world where there was a a clear delineation. Say we've got heaven up here, we have the earth down here, and we have hell down there. There was much less of an established sense of these are angels, these are demons. This this is the period when all of those ideas are kind of still fermenting. And that makes it really exciting because you've just got spell texts where they're, they're calling on different characters and you'll see Jesus mentioned alongside Hebrew characters, alongside Hermes and Eros are very popular as well. And then Selene uh, pops up occasionally for moon-related things. And it's it's just a mishmash. And originally when the spells were were discovered and they started to being talked about, they said, oh, yes, these are just ignorant additions by these guys who were charlatans who were trying to get money out of people. And what we know now is that as the temple system collapsed in Egypt, obviously priests needed to earn a living somehow. And so they were making sure that they kept up to date with who the latest gods were, who everybody was interested in, and their spell texts represent what you would call a syncretistic society. That is where you've got Greeks, you've got Romans, you've got Jews, you've got Egyptians, you've got every type of religious expression going on. So the best way to work with everyone who comes to your door is to make sure that you can pop things out as you need to. Do you believe in magic? 
I get asked that by everybody. I know a lot of scientists and they always say, but you, you, you don't believe in this stuff, do you? And the thing is, I don't believe that there's a, a some incredible force out there that, that you can access it. You know, you can't shout expecto patronum with enough training and produce uh, a stag to save yourself from um, dementors. Well, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? I'm still waiting for my letter from Hogwarts. But... There is a lot of theory around the importance of rituals and ritual practices, especially as we've lost a lot of those rituals in the West. Um, and that's not necessarily a good thing. We have lost performing daily rites. And because they're associated with religions and deities, uh, a more atheistic society tends to say, well, that can't be important. There's no deity there blah 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 and actually it's not about the deity it's about you getting up and getting ready for the day i'm actually part of a group who they sort of experiment with different practices and i found as part of my mental health stuff actually if you sit and chant for say 10 minutes chanting uh, it triggers the vibrations in the vagus nerve it can have a very calming effect we know that when people sing and they sing together in groups that this can have a very beneficial effect for humans and because we don't tend to do that outside of a religious context we've lost a lot of that um just day-to-day rituals rituals where we pass certain milestones in life we tend to forget about uh, we all know about graduation And that's a fantastic, that's an example of a ritual that has survived where we recognize that you achieved a certain thing. But what I also do in order to maintain my mental health and get through all of this is I celebrate milestones. And milestones are different from achievements. So if you complete your winter panel and you write your 10,000 words and the the moment you finish that, you go, milestone achieved, sit down, going to do something. And you have the things that you want to do. So you go out for a meal, you hang out with your partner, you watch the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery. Whatever it is you're going to do, you stop, you recognize that you did that thing. And even during the day, in a mini way, I've got a friend who even has different pairs of shoes and he changes his shoes depending on what he's actually doing for different activities. And we would do that for going to the gym, but you know, we don't stop and think, I finished a set activity. I'm going to take a pause now, recognize that before I move on to the next thing. And when you actually do it, it feels like that must take a lot of time. But actually doing this stuff, sometimes even though you feel a bit weird when you're doing like particularly the the, the very strange magical things um, where you're pouring lemon juice over your head and stuff like that, you're like, why am I doing this? This can't have any effect. But actually, there's a psychological impact when you do something with the intention of, say, healing, you can actually create a healing effect. It can make you feel better. You can go, well, I'm doing something towards, say, making myself feel better about this upcoming Greek exam or my viva or whatever it is that you're you're making an effort. You're going, I know that this hurts. I know that this hurts me. It's totally normal. I can accept that. But I'm also going to help myself psychologically to cope with that. And you're giving yourself as much support as you need. I've had people talk about religion as a crutch. I broke my ankle whilst I was doing my master's. I'm going to say crutch is a marvelous thing because I couldn't have walked around without them. Sometimes you need that stuff. It's okay to have support systems in place and you shouldn't just think of them as crutches that you need to do without. Life is stressful. Life is hard. 
you know, the whole of life is hard. You know, you're supposed to, you know, get a house and a mortgage and a partner and, and a cat and all the stuff you're supposed to do and support yourself for the rest of your life and then have enough for retirement in a world where pensions are going to stop existing. God, it's hard work. So, you know, you need this stuff. We were wondering, can we talk about the experience of your second versus your first PhD? Okay, what would you like to know? Is it easier? Is the writing easier? Do you know more what to expect? Is it less emotional? Is it, is it an easier thing for knowing the experience because you know what to expect or can you know what to expect? It's different because it's a different subject. Um, I, I didn't have to do so many ancient languages the first time round, but yes, I think once you've done it, you are aware of where you can stop stressing, which is the huge thing in doing a PhD is the level of stress and I think it's that you feel like you're climbing Everest and I think once you feel like well I've done it so the stress just it's slightly easier to cope with whatever you're you're dealing with because you think well I've, I've done this before I've done the writing before I'm familiar with having to write long academic pieces of work one thing that's great about Everyone complains about panels and, and, and the level of EPROG um, control that people have. When I was doing my PhD, there was none of that. Uh, you had no regular... Well, you, I, I was lucky I had regular interaction with my supervisor, but you didn't get this these stages where you they were checking up on you. You could really derail and nobody would notice because... They weren't checking up on you. They just go, are you all right? Can you send me some work? And, and I saw people fail. And I think a lot of the reason why they failed was that they needed extra support to get there. If something was going wrong in their lives, and it is extremely stressful doing a PhD, you should be able to access your panel and get regular practice at talking about your work. And I think it's the one thing we never got was we didn't get that regular practice. Talking with people, dealing with the issues that come up. Combating all of that stuff. I mean, I'm doing my second one. I'm, I have very long-term mental health issues. And so I have to be aware that I need to keep talking to my supervisor. Uh, they're very good at handling that kind of stuff, much better than they were when I was doing my first PhD. Uh, although, and I have experience now of being in the outside world and academia seems to be much better at handling it, although it has still has many, many issues to straighten up about that. But yeah, it's... I think once you've done it before, you're like, well, you can take weekends off. You learn that, you you know, working every single hour is not going to make you better. It's not going to make the PhD better. It's going to have this horrible effect on you by the end. You have to step back. You learn to take breaks. You learn to have holidays. She said not taking any holidays. And you just, I think you get a better sense of what to focus on. You know that you've got to focus on your research questions instead of getting sidetracked and all that kind of thing. And I think you it is just, it's more straightforward. Getting there in three years feels less intimidating. When you, when you choose to do a second PhD, is that, are you kind of like, is the first subject dead to you? Or are you still interested in the first subject? Like, do they, do they play together or is this completely starting a new path? This is starting a new path, but it, I'm sure if you sat me down and asked me about Letters from Women in the 19th Century talking about uh, raising children and working full-time, I would go full ball on that still okay. and could probably talk just as much. I'm horrendously out of date. I'm a good 20 years out of date now on that subject. But I, you know, it, it's still there in the background. I keep 
some of the books that I worked with, particularly the one book that started me on that particular path, I've kept that book. And I still think about those women. And if when I see Victorian material that is outright wrong, I still get angry. <laughs> because you talked a lot about coping with the PhD and how now you feel more sure about coping with it. Are there any particular things that you do to kind of help yourself, prop yourself up to, to cope with this stress when it gets to you? Yes, I'm a meditator. I'm a big fan of meditation, even when you really don't want to do it, even if you have to do it lying down, even if you fall asleep doing it. Uh, my Buddhist teacher told me once that if you fall asleep meditating, you probably needed a nap. Take regular naps, take regular breaks. I make sure that I don't work in evenings and weekends because you just will gradually drain yourself and your work quality will decline very rapidly. I also do something called morning pages, which is where I write just brain dump. What's, you know, how stressed am I? How much am I struggling? What's the, what's the stuff that's going on in my background life that's really hurting me right now? It's just whether you use a website to do it, whether you use a private diary, whether you do it by hand, that is amazing for getting all the crap out of your head because then you start going, oh, well, I've dealt with all of that. I can get on with my day. Yeah, so the basic is meditation, take regular breaks, nap, make sure that you sleep and eat properly and always be prepared to say, no, I can't do that because I'm not well enough to do that. You can't do everything. You can't go to all of the workshops. You can't learn all of the theories. You can't do all of the conference papers. And it's actually okay if you don't do all of those things. You're not going to, if you want a career in academia, I don't think you actually have to kill yourself to get there. Usually we ask everyone to bring in an anecdote, but I just have to ask you, what is the craziest piece of magic that you've encountered? The craziest spell? I wanted that too. This is, this is one that um, I thought was really exciting. When I did my master's presentation on this, um, the lecturer in, in charge of the course asked me, um, can you unmagic something? I don't know, I hadn't looked at that side of it. I said, I'll go and investigate. Now it turns out there is a spell for unmagicking things. So for one of the things that's really big in the ancient world is necromancy. And necromancy is not raising the dead, it's talking to the dead because the dead, especially people who died by violence, were believed to be stuck in a kind of interim area between the living and the dead. So they knew a hell of a lot about what was going on. So if you wanted to know the future, you talk to them. So I found this spell that was for unmagicking your divination skull. And I thought that was absolutely brilliant. If your skull is not performing correctly, yes. you can, um, what you have to do is you, you put strips of iron over its mouth to hold it closed. And I just kept imagining just, you, you know, you're a, you're a practitioner, you're in your workshop and in the corner there's your skull going, Derek, Derek, this is Imhotep. You will die next weekend, and you're going. I don't don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. So they're ba they're banging <laughs> things into to correct this skull that isn't working. So do and they replace it, or after they unmagic it and shut it up literally, or do they 
they just leave it for a period like in timeout. Or they switch it off and switch it on again. Uh, that's true, that's true. That's what I thought. You know, do we actually have technicians who are there going, you know, you call you call uh, Magical Sport and go, hi, um, yeah, my skull isn't working. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, so the fault, um, yeah, it's been happening for about three weeks. Yeah, I was trying to do a divination uh, according to Isis for um, for a woman and you know it was just telling me all kinds of crap you know it's giving me stuff from last week and <laughs> I just you know and they're going well have you tried switching it off and switching it back on again <laughs> yeah so that, that was I mean it, it, there is some really really strange stuff out there um, covering yourself in scarab dung to turn yourself invisible a real thing I don't know whether you'd want to try that imagine the supplier I mean how do you farm it for its I mean, I guess somebody does. I mean, if it was a thing. Presumably. I mean, it must have come from somewhere. But what the thing I'm wondering is, I mean, somebody had to give success stories about this. I mean, maybe this isn't something you're proud of. So maybe they didn't talk about the failures. I mean, I mean, you want to hide because you're invisible. But you'd have to think that, like, someone would get caught and word would get around, oh, that idiot covered himself in scarab dung because he thought it would turn invisible and it didn't. I mean, I guess if you cover yourself in scarab dung, like, people will avoid you. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So, so in a way, yes, you are invisible at that point. Yeah. I, I, I never got that one. There were lots of rings for, for performing different tricks. The great thing about the ancient world is there's no internet. So uh, you don't have to worry about, you know, you're getting your reviews on the, on there going, this spell did not oh, true, work. Oh, true, true. Know? So you don't have that. One other one that, that comes to mind is um, there was one involving... A statuette of Eros used for love magic, and you actually had to take it to the woman's door. And I'm just kind of imagining: <laughs> Do you pick when she's out? Do you make have to make sure make sure, sure her dad is out? Yeah, make sure her dad is out. <laughs> or if you're, because there's a lot of love magic which is aimed at women who were already married. Oh. Um, this was clearly a thing. Oh. Yeah. Imagine the husband, I found this on the doorstep. What do you know about this? <laughs> I know, I know. But imagining you're, like you're just getting on with your life and then you open the door and there's this guy holding a statue going, yeah, she is. Look, look, a statue. <laughs> oh, yeah. So basically the statue acts as your wingman. Thanks for listening. And remember, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here. What happens on the podcast? stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a new podcast about the lighter side of humanities research at the University of Manchester. If you're a humanities researcher who has something funny to share, please be in touch with us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at NSFP Podcast. Have an adequately happy existence.